the British and Allied army stopped in their tracks. A failed siege, Wellington indecisive and unsure, a long terrible retreat. Today I'm joined by Peninsula War historians Mark Thompson and Charles Esdale, I'm sure you've heard of them, they're a couple of legends whose books are well worth reading. They're joining me to look at the Burgos campaign of 1812, a siege that started exactly 209 years ago today, the 19th of September 1812. It was arguably the lowest point for Wellington and his army during the entire Peninsula War. Some might say it was a complete disaster. But by climbing the ladder and scaling the wall. So if you like this song, it's the ballad of Jamie Foyers. Jamie Foyers was a young soldier in the Black Watch, killed assaulting Burgos. I don't know about you, but I find there's something very haunting about songs like this from the era. You must remember this song as we will come back to it later in the episode and hear a little bit more about it. Okay guys, well before we kick off the episode, just a brief piece of housekeeping. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment as it really helps other fellow military history geeks like us to find it. Also, if you aren't already signed up for my monthly newsletter, then please do so. You can visit redcoathistory.com newsletter. When you join the mailing list, you receive two free eBooks, one on the Martini Henry rifle and one about the brutal Battle of Albuera. So let's meet today's guests. I, I'm, I'm Charles Osdale. Um, I, 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 I guess I'm quite a well-known name in, in Napoleonic studies in general. Um, I have worked extensively on the Peninsula War um, and a whole series of aspects of it, um, both top-down stuff. I mean, I published a, a new history of the Peninsula War and lots of detailed stuff as well, um, bottom-up stuff and working monographs. And one of my more recent um, books on the, on the Peninsula War is about um, the fortress of Burgos. Charles Esdale is probably one of my hero worship people, so along with Rory Muir, who have been there while, while my interest on in the Peninsula War has grown. Um, although my I interest probably say still... say I'm an idol with feet of clay. <laughs> no, you, you, but bit of hero worship, although I can maybe disagree with you on occasion now. <laughs> I'm quite right, too. But, but, yeah, I, I'm very much an amateur at this, but my interest does go back 40 years. Um, my first book was on Albuera. But really where, where I've come to Burgos from is a bit of a roundabout route through the Royal Engineers, which has been a bit of a specialism of mine over the last few years. Uh, and one of my recent books was on the uh, engineer Field Marshal John Burgoyne, who was actually the chief engineer at the Siege of Burgos. And a lot of his papers are unpublished. So I, I covered it in, in quite a bit of detail in my recent book on Burgoyne, hopefully with maybe some new bits of information ju just to try and set the scene about, can I say how it all went so badly wrong if we're not getting too far ahead of ourselves? 
So, yeah, but Burgos is an interest for me, really, through, through following through on John Burgoyne. As you may remember in our last episode covering the Peninsula War, we looked at the brilliant British victory of Salamanca. But what happened next? And what were Wellington's options? Let's jump straight into the debate. Well, I suppose his options were twofold. Well, I suppose threefold, really, although one of, them, one of the options is a, is a, a bit of an outsider. Um, essentially, he could have pushed straight on eastwards and pursued the French troops in front of him towards France. Um, but that would have left um, lots of French troops on his right flank, obviously, in, in the, in the centre of Spain and more particularly in the south of Spain. He could march on Madrid... Um, which would which would essentially give him you know, the proverbial central position and enable him to operate on interior lines. Or alternatively, I suppose, it, you know, this is the outsider, it, it, it would have been a very long march. He could have marched his army southwards to attack Marshal Soult in Andalusia. Um, the problem with that, of course, was that it would have enabled the French in the north and centre of Spain to, to reorganise after the cataclysm of Sal Salamanca. Um, so marching on Madrid made sense. It made political sense as well, because mm. it would give him, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, that, that political capital with the Spaniards. Um, and it also, uh, if you like, was a, a response to a, a increasingly dangerous strategic situation. Um, the fact of the matter was that, that Wellington was badly outnumbered. Um, he, he had an army of, what, 60,000-odd men, uh, a third of whom were Portuguese, um, and he was facing something like 250,000 French. Now, as he advanced, so the French gave up territory. Uh, initially in, in, in northern Spain. Um, the more territory they surrendered, the more they pulled back, the more they concentrated their forces. The more they concentrated their forces, the more Wellington was outnumbered. And on top of that, he's in a very, if you like, dangerous geographical position because he, he, he's been forced to advance into the centre of Spain. Now, obviously, that's a long way from the Portuguese frontier. Um, but also, large parts of central Spain um, are the mesetas, high rolling plains, very little in the way of uh, natural cover, very few trees, um, or at least where there are trees, it's, it's all very open, so you can move through it perfectly easily. Um, rivers that you can often ford very easily. You know, this is, this is a... It's this type of country in which he's actually quite vulnerable. And, and just to conclude, at Salamanca, of course, he was being manoeuvred out of Spain. He, he'd been forced to retreat um, in precisely this sort of country. Of course, he turns the tables at Salamanca very neatly. But you know, it's, you know, we should remember that, that Wellington was retreating and, and did feel insecure in this sort of country. So Madrid's a logical choice. Um, it's a good way of capitalising on Salamanca. But also, 
in a sense, it's a reflection of weakness. And this is something you know, to which we shall return. Mark, maybe you can then pick up. So the, the army move into Madrid. What, what, what happened at that point? Did, did Madrid pretty much fall without a fight? And then what, what, what were the options for Wellington after the fall of Madrid? Yeah, um, there wasn't really any fight at Madrid. I mean, the, the French had withdrawn out, out of the city. Uh, they stayed in the garrison or the, as the Retiro, which is the main... I'll, I'll use the word castle as a generic statement in Madrid. But, but really, I think 24 hours after they arrived, the French realised that this wasn't going to work and they surrendered. So there was no serious opposition to entering Madrid. The, the Spanish population, I think, generally were pretty happy they were there. Um, and I, I think it was really party time for two or three weeks then. Um, maybe not so much for Wellington, because as Charles has just said, he had to decide whether whether to follow the defeated French army east and or north or go down and attack Sul to the south, which I think he was nervous about because it was a long way uh, at the height of summer. You don't really want to be marching hundreds of miles with troops and extending your, your logistic communications line as you're doing it. So I think Wellington was very much evaluating what his options were from Madrid. I also agree with Charles that you know, I think it's very much a political statement. Capturing the uh, capital of Spain is a great boost for the uh, the Allied army, but it's also it sort of would have not gone down very well in, in Paris. I'm sure Napoleon had some choice words for his marshals when he discovered that, that Joseph was, was scuttling north in front of uh, the, the Allied army. So I think really his time in Madrid was, was trying to decide what to do. And my understanding is in some ways, and if you look at the dates, when he heard that Sewell had abandoned the siege of Cadiz and was moving north, it was a few days later when Wellington decided to, to also travel north and chase after the French army. So I think in some ways the French maybe made the decision for him in that the southern French forces around Cadiz started withdrawing, which saved Wellington the trouble of having to go down and dig them out. I think we can probably come on to say a little bit more about his strategic position later. Let me, let me just change the track there. What I wanted to pick up on, actually, was the Retiro in Madrid. Because it's important to realise that the citadel that's built at Burgos isn't an isolated case. Um, obviously, wherever the French go, they have to install garrisons. Um, now, you have some cities like Badajoz, like like Vigo, um, which are fortresses. And they've got Bobon-type fortifications around them, and they're of a size that you can you can defend them. You might have to use several thousand troops, but, but at least they're defensible, and they've got good defences. There are lots of other places, all the big cities, um, Madrid, Seville, um, Valencia, Barcelona, um, which are not surrounded by fortifications and which are much too big to hold or uh, to, uh, well, at least to, to, to fortify. So what do the French do? They say, right, well, we can't possibly hope to defend the whole of Madrid 
the whole of Seville against the siege. What's the obvious thing to do? The obvious thing to do is to build a citadel into which our troops can withdraw if they're attacked. And, and they can they can make it difficult for the for the Allied forces to make use of the city's concerns, and they can hold up waiting for relief force. Now, um, Wellington had, had already run full tilt into one of these uh, improvised fortresses at Salamanca, <laughs> um, the convents. Um, and there had been a miniature siege there, siege there and it had posed some problems. And But OK, he'd overcome it. Um, the Retiro, um, it, it, it still exists today, the Retiro Park um, is the Madrid's equivalent to Central Park. Um, was the, were the gardens of the of the old royal palace, and they were on heights which they're not very high, but they certainly command the whole of the old city. Um, Napoleon had seized them as soon as he arrived before the city in December eighteen oh eight, and had made to attack the city from them. Um, and they were the obvious place for a citadel. And what what the French threw up was. Um, a really big um, set of ramparts um, enclosing about half the current park, um, the southern half of it. You can't, you, there's no remains of it now. Um, there's one tree which the French are supposed to use as a lookout post. <laughs> um, but the point I'm making, of course, is that the sister at Burgos is not an isolated case. It was something that cropped up almost everywhere. And the interesting thing about Burgos is that it was the first of them to be constructed. And um, Napoleon himself chose the site and, and had quite a lot to say about what the defences should consist of. Sorry. Get no, off. fantastic. Well, I think, I think what we can do is we'll, we'll come on to a bit more detail about that then in a minute, because I'd love to know more about about how, how it was built and where it was sited and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but then in terms of Madrid then, so the Allies have captured Madrid. Uh, they've got uh, King Joseph and Salt sort of, did, did you say sort of southeast of Madrid, more or less? Is that where they were at this point? Ultimately, well, Valencia is kind of, kind of due east of Madrid. Ultimately. Yeah. Great. And then, so in so north of Madrid, you then have uh, the the forces under Clausel or Clausel. Is is that right? Was Marmont still wounded at this point? Is that why he's he's not around? Yeah, he he'd been he'd been replaced um, by by Clausel. Um, and then there's also the uh, the army, the French Army of the North, which is commanded by Caffarelli, I think. General Caffarelli. Um, they were they were the forces garrisoning the Basque country, Navarre, that sort of area. And and um, as Clausel retreated, he obviously was able to join up with them, um, and they form a a mass of troops, um, basically around Vittoria, where the decisive battle takes place. Brilliant. And and then what made what 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 drew Wellington out of Madrid towards the north? Then why did he head for Burgos? What was the importance of of Burgos itself? And I think what what pulled Wellington out of Madrid initially was that Clausel uh, advanced from Vitoria back back towards Burgos and seemed to be coming back into central Spain. 
we know in hindsight, I'm not sure if Wellington knew at the time, though, what Clausel was doing was trying to pick up all the garrisons that had been stranded in Zamora, Toro and Astorgia. So Wellington was seeing the French advancing more towards him. And I think it was very much an attempt, I'm guessing, to stop Clausel doing this. Although I think we can talk about how effective Wellington's advance was after. But the French seemed to be advancing towards Wellington. Wellington moved north to do something. Yes. Pause for Charles to comment. To, to do something. I mean, this whole business, what Wellington was doing, is extremely difficult to fathom. I mean, I mean, Mark waved, kindly waved a copy of my book um, uh, at the camera a little while ago. If you read that, you, and you can see me physically struggling with, with, with the, 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 the enormous contradictions. Um, Clausel comes out and he doesn't march towards Madrid. He, he marches basically westwards. So he's passing, if you like, above Madrid. If, if you like, if you draw a line, a straight line from Madrid to the sea, Crozel is marching at 90 degrees to that. He's marching westwards. Um, he's only come out with the, the troops he himself commanded. So he only had 25,000 men. He's moving into an area which, if Wellington is, is vulnerable in, well, he's vulnerable as well. I mean, one thing that should become clear was that the, the British cavalry, man for man, were better than the French cavalry. And, and if they outnumbered the French cavalry, they were going to do rather well. Um, now, Wellington's in a very, very difficult position. He's got, he's outnumbered by, let's say, four to one overall. He expects some help from the Spaniards and hope that they would tie down some of the French. But that's, that, that means he's just going to be outnumbered three to one, perhaps, rather than four to one. His best hope is, is actually to catch the French armies while they're divided and, and deal a massive blow quickly. And Clausel's advance actually gives him that opportunity. And so he marches north and he does talk, well, the, the sources are, are, are rather vague on this, but to one or two people, he does talk about marching on Burgos and advancing on Burgos. But we'll come back to that. Um, it's quite clear that in the first instance, what he's, after, what he's up to doing or out for doing is catching Clozel. Clozel's marched a long way west, he's now got to come back again. He's picked up two of the garrisons, one surrendered before he got there. And he's marching back again, and he has to go back the same way. Wellington needed to march due north very quickly. He could actually have marched due north on Burgos and probably got, definitely got to Burgos before Clozel. Decides not to do that. He decides to go through for like a halfway house and he marches on Valladolid, which is much further west. It's northwest of Madrid. A couple of interesting points. One I hadn't picked up, but was in Carol Duval's book, uh, Wellington's Worst Scrape, which is obviously on the retreat from Burgos. She, she 
commented on something Wellington had said, which I'd missed, that he was quite happy for Clausel and Foix, uh, Foy, as we say in England, to uh, collect the garrisons because he didn't want to have to dig the French garrisons out himself. Um, but the, the, the slightly more confusing one is Clausel waited around, I think it was Valladolid, with about 11,000 troops and sent Foix on to get the garrison. So there was quite a period of two to three weeks when Clausel with 11,000 troops was in a very short distance of where Wellington was. And it's if he wanted to destroy them, that would have been the time to do it. Yeah, that would have been the time to do it. Um, but even though he'd let slip that time, because I mean, he was engaged in a variety of political affairs in Madrid, he was, you know, he was in contact mm. with the Spaniards, um, he was also in contact with the British government and so forth. He couldn't really march straight away. Um, but he could still have caught um, Clausel at Bayadolid had he marched there directly. But instead, he takes an, a, a, an indirect road, which costs him a day's march. And on top of that, um, some of his divisional commanders um, were new to the job. One of them actually dies and has to be replaced, literally as the campaign's starting. And the, the, the advance is therefore extremely slow. And they actually get to um, the River Duero, which is what Bayadolid is on. It runs east-west. And the French slip away. They slip away overnight uh, in the direction of Burgos. And Wellington doesn't chase after them. Instead, he turns aside, he goes into Bayadolid, um, he proclaims the constitution, um, which is always very careful to do wherever he went, um, and he loses two days. Um, even then, he might, he might have turned you know, his army round and got Clozel. Would have been a bit of a stretch, but he might have done it. But when he does advance on Burgos, he moves incredibly slowly. Nine or ten miles a day. Absolutely no attempt to, to push the French at all. And so he ends up at Burgos. Now, if you read the general works, and I'm sure that you'll agree with me here, Mark, if you read the general works, they all tend to elide this. They all say, and having, having captured Madrid, Wellington decided to move on Burgos. Well, it's not at all clear that that's what he decided at all, because if you're going to attack a fortress, you need siege guns. <laughs> and, he, and, you need, and you need supplies. You need, you need picks and shovels. You know, you need, you need um, gabions and all sorts of, of, of engineering supplies. And he doesn't take any. He, take, he takes hard, hardly any heavy guns. I, um, I, I think from reading the correspondence, Wellington doesn't talk about besieging Burgos until a few days after he had left Madrid. So it's almost like something that was developing in his mind. But there's the, the other odd thing is what was the point of attacking Burgos anyway? Because mm. when, Wellington seems to have assumed it was a fairly weak place, which it, in many ways it was. But if it was a weak place that he could capture, 
with the aid of only a minimal siege train, it was also a weak place that the French could capture with only a minimal siege train. It's also a long, long way northeast. Um, it's going to be very, very difficult to sustain. Um, the French can simply cover it and march around it easily enough. Um, any idea that somehow capturing Burgos was going to block up the French in the north of Spain simply doesn't work. And, and so, I mean, I think I'm inclined to agree with what you were at least implying, Mark, which, or maybe you weren't implying this, but my feeling is that the attack on Clozel having been completely mishandled, um, partly by Wellington himself, who does not seem to have been having a good day, and partly by his subordinates, he's got to do something. He's got to be seen to be doing something. So he, he moves on Burgos and he, and he hopes it will give him at least a token success. I mean, maybe he'd stick a, a fairly expendable brigade in as, as, a, as, a, as a garrison and hope that they'd win him a bit of time. Um, yeah. The, the, I mean, the other, Mark, you might want to comment on how he splits his army because, of course, he doesn't march on Burgos with all his forces. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do numbers because I'm not a numbers man. Anybody can read them in a book if they want them. But probably in rough terms, Wellington took probably about 40% of his army north. So we're talking 25,000, maybe a few more than that, and left more than that under Hill. Generalisation again, around Madrid. So Wellington was still very conscious of the, the French troops coming up from Cadiz and also Suchet on the East Coast, etc. So he couldn't afford to take his whole army with him. The army he took was slightly bigger than Clausel's, but not significantly bigger. Um, and I, I wonder in there again, because we're going to spend a lot of time wondering about the siege train, is whether there is hesitancy about taking a, a substantial siege train forward was the basis that if he was threatened in any way, he would have to abandon it, which was something he didn't want to do. But this is clutching at straws, looking for a, a reason rather than something I'm, I'm fully convinced by. So, I mean, just to just to cut in there for, for a second, guys. So the impression I have always had of Wellington is this master chess player who's always kind of three moves ahead. Does this seem to be an occasion where actually he was just winging it and didn't really have a plan? Uh, at the risk of being um, assassinated by some Wellington worshipper, um, I, I fear it, it is very much the case. But he was in a very, very difficult position. Um, it's, it's hard to see what else he could have done. He, he couldn't march north with all his troops. He couldn't abandon Madrid. To have simply, uh, to have simply abandoned Madrid would have, be, would have been uh, a sort of huge embarrassment, a critical embarrassment. Having captured it, he had to occupy it. Yeah. Um, the, the, the I, I would offer a suggestion, Charles, that if he wanted to get a win, having uh, captured Madrid, that would have been by destroying Clausel, not by besieging Burgos. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's what he needed to do. He hasn't got a very big army. He can't use all of it. Um. He's got to keep the Spaniards on side. 
He also has the problem of the Spanish armies. He, he hoped, of course, um, that the Spanish armies would do something to keep the French pinned down. I mean, he had, he'd had various diversionary operations happening. Um, he'd had uh, Sir Hume Popham at the head of a squadron of frigates stooging around on the north coast of Spain and, and beating up French ports with the aid of Spanish troops whom he had on board and local um, local irregulars. Um, he had the expedition to eastern Spain under Maitland, I think it is. Yes. Um, where, where a, a force had come from Sicily and landed in eastern Spain. And that doesn't actually do very much, but it, does, it is enough to in um, Suchet down, the, the commander in eastern Spain. Um, and there were also, there was a Spanish army in northwestern Spain, which is besieging Astorga and making a very slow job of it. Um, and there's also a considerable Spanish force down in southern Spain under a general called Ballesteros. And Wellington seems to have hoped that Ballesteros would advance northeastwards, really, um, and, and threaten the French flank if they move from Valencia or Madrid. Um, but actually, Wellington knew full well that the Spanish armies, it wasn't that they were cowards. It, it, was, it wasn't that they, they were necessarily commanded by bad generals. Um, but the Spanish war effort was, was absolutely ham, hamstrung by all sorts of issues. Um, equipment, recruitment, finance. Um, and Wellington knew that the Spanish armies were fairly weak and he couldn't depend on them, which is why you go back to the need for a speedy attack on Clozel. Mm. But the, the last thing to say, and sorry, I'm going on, the last thing to say is that if you look at the army that he takes to Burgos, he doesn't take the troops he might expect. He doesn't take the light division. He doesn't take, I think, the third division. He takes he takes the first division and the sixth and seventh divisions. Is that is that right, Mark? Yep, yep, you're right. No experience of siege. Oh, and, and, and the fifth division. And the fifth division. Yes. Yeah. Now those troops, none of them have any have any experience of taking towns. Um, you know the. The, the light division did, the third division did, but none of the others. Um, and so this is a little bit surprising. Just, um, just to cut in there, weren't the 5th division, weren't they successful at the storming of Badajoz, the 5th division? Yeah, they were involved, but it, it had been... Originally, it was only a sort of a, a diversionary operation. Yeah, and, and they didn't actually face very much in the way of resistance. They, they, they Fair got enough. Nicely, because most of the French were fighting elsewhere. Understood. Um, and they and they didn't storm a breach. They they it was it was an escalade. It's slightly different. So so yeah, a, a bit of experience, but not much. Now the I don't know if you remember this, uh, Mark. Um, do you remember a paper which a chap called um, Stephen Petty? Yeah, I do. I was there at a Wellington Congress. Not the last one, I think, a couple ago. Yes, yes, I, I was there and I did hear Stephen's paper. Now, do you remember what he was saying about the, about the mood in, in Wellington's army in general? 
Yeah, um, I can remember snippets. I've been trying for a number of years to, to get a copy of it, where I, and I, I must admit I haven't failed. But, I mean, Stephen was basically saying that the, the morale in Wellington's army at this time was fairly poor. And, yeah. and as we'll come back to later, I think the other thing he said, which is very telling for the, the, the late 1812 campaigns, is the number of officers missing from the regiments through sickness or leave was excessive to the tune of roughly a third of officers were missing. And this becomes very important in terms of managing the troops in the siege and also managing the troops during the retreat. Uh, I yep. wish Stephen would publish the paper because it was very, very interesting. Yep, yep. I, I, I've tried to find it as well and I've never been able to. I really wanted to read it. But yes, my memory accords of yours. There were terrible morale problems. And something else, um, I mean, you talked about party time in Madrid. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, 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 the British had a, a great time in Madrid. I mean, they're, they're absolutely besieged by women and, um, you know, it really is party time. Now, the thing is that the troops who were marched out to the north were not best pleased because they were missing out on the party. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, picking up the point in a slightly more ser serious note, there was certainly a lot of grumbling in the army as Wellington, I'm going to use pursued in the loosest sense of the word, as Wellington pursued Clausel back towards Burgos. The, the army generally could not understand why Wellington wasn't attacking. So the army was in a grumpy mood before they even arrived at Burgos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite right. Quite right. So, so, so now Wellington's decided to move on Burgos. What, what were the French forces who were there? And we touched on it earlier, but maybe we can go into a bit more detail. And, and what defences did they have? Burgos is a provincial capital. Um, it's got a very famous cathedral. Um, it had had a pretty rough war because it was, it was an important um, point on the main route from um, the French frontier to Madrid. And also, for that matter, from the French frontier to northern Portugal, um, it had been sacked in 1808. It had been under permanent occupation since then. The civilian population had had a pretty miserable time, and many of them had actually left. So it was a bit of a ghost town, but a very important French base. Now, it was partially surrounded by old medieval city walls, um, but there were big gaps in these which had been torn down in the course of the 18th century um, in the course of urban improvements. And the only other fortification was a, a, a medieval castle um, which was in ruins. Um, there had been a disastrous fire, I think about 75 years before, um, when some fire, there had been a firework display, it had all gone wrong. And, and the castle had been burnt out. So it was a shell. And, and we know that the, the French had, had strengthened the walls, um, rebuilt them. On, the, on looking out towards the north, um, the French had constructed a modern casemated battery on top of some of the buildings. It's called the, the Battery Napoleon. Um, but it, it wasn't just the castle. People think about the castle of Burgos. French knew perfectly well that the castle walls could get knocked down. 
so they surrounded the castle with a very complex system of, um, of ramparts. The, the hill that the castle's on is a separate feature. Um, but on the north side, there is another hill. Um, it's separated from the castle hill by a deep ravine, and the, the sides of that are quite steep. Um, but this hill is, is much bigger than the castle hill. It's a kind of tableland which basically swings around the whole of the northern side of the town and overlooks it. And it's exactly the same height as the castle hill. In other words, it's a very obvious place from which to bombard the castle. And so what the French had done um, was they built a, a, a detached work called a horn work, basically because it's like, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's like, it's like, it's like a, a bull's head, if you like. It's got horns on either side projecting towards where the enemy is going to come from. And this was a very substantial work. And it was, it was called the, the um, hornwork of, of uh, San Miguel because it was on the hill of San Miguel. Um, now, describing the, the fortifications in detail, well, the hornwork wasn't quite finished. Um, the front of it was done, the sides of it were done, but the, but the back of it was still open. Um, it was supposed to be properly closed work, but all the French had time to do was to close off the back of it with a parapet. So if you can imagine this shape a bit like an upside down W um, with, with deep ditches um, on three sides of it. Um, and in front, um, in between the two projecting bastions, you've got a ravelin, which is a detached V-shape lump, if you like, designed to split up any attackers. And then beyond that, you've got a grassy, which is just this flat or gently sloping land um, leading out across the tableland. Around the castle, um, mostly, not quite entirely, but mostly there were three lines of defences. At the bottom of the hill, you start from the bottom, you had on about half the perimeter, you had part of the old medieval city wall. Um, the, the castle hill had actually been enclosed within the city walls, but um, the, the quarter where the castle was, or below the castle, had been the old Jewish quarter and had been abandoned when the, when the Jews were, were driven out. So it was just empty hillside. But you had the wall, and the wall was, was quite high, um, 25, 30, 30 foot high. Um, and it also wasn't a wall in the sense which you might imagine it. It's not like, um, if you go to Conway Castle for the sake of argument, you've got what is clearly a wall of the castle, a battlemented wall. And so, so you've got the moat, and then you've got the wall going up, and walkway at the top, and then you've got the wall going down again. At Burgos, it's not like that. Um, basically hundreds of years of erosion um, and water draining off and things like that had silted up the whole of the area behind the wall. So what you've got is actually rather a terrace um, 
a scarped base, if you like, of the, of the hill. So you, you've got the, 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 the vertical wall, and then behind it, you've got earth. And you've got a, a flat terrace um, to where the, the next part of the fences rise up. And there you've got two lines of, of um, urban ramparts. Again, very substantial affairs in places that are 25, 30 feet high. And then at the top, you've got the old basilica inside the defences, the old basilica, which was used as a storehouse of the church. And then beside it, the castle, which is, if you like, the citadel within the citadel. Um, was it um, perfect? No. Um, when you have successive lines of defence, they're supposed to cover each other. So you can't, what you're supposed to have is a system where you can only batter one line at once. And to, to, to get at the, the, the second line, to breach that, you have to breach the first line. To get at the third line, you have to breach the second line. Because the hill on which the, the castle was built is so steep, and because it's so small in extent, um, what you've got is the three lines of defences, um, uh, one below the other, or one above the other. So you can actually fire at all three of them simultaneously. Um, also, the French had no shelter inside. They had they had almost nothing in the way of barracks. Their men all um, slept out in little wooden shelters um, or in tents. Plenty of guns. Um, I forget exactly how many guns, about... About 25. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a fair number, and, and I think about 12 are heavy. Yeah. Well, um, my, my notes say 20, 25 with nine 16-pounders. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, I mean, 16-pounders are, are pretty good. Um, and, and about... 2,200 men? Yeah, the, the garrison was about 2,000. It was two battalions of the 34th and one of the 100th, then with a miscellany of, of gunners and sappers. So about slightly over 2,000 in total. Um, the, the 34th is an interesting unit because it was the, it was the unit which had got um, very badly hit at a, at a, 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 Royal, a Royal Molinos. In, in October of the previous year. And it, it seems to have been put there, um, not exactly as a rescuer, but somewhere where it could recover its strength and so forth. Um, and, and the final thing to say about the fortress was that it was the, um, precisely because it was on the main road from France, and at a point or near a point where you, know, you, you, you went westwards to go towards Portugal and southwards to go towards Madrid, it was used as the main artillery depot. So it was absolutely, literally piled high with, with, with cannonballs and had a huge amount of powder. Who, who was the French commander there? Uh, uh, du, du Breton. Du Breton, yeah. Yeah. Who, who had um, been at, San, at Santander, but when he abandoned Santander, he ended up at Burgos. And again, the interesting thing about him, um, 
given what happens, you'd expect some real sort of fire eater who had been, you know, in, in the front rank in God knows how many uh, in, engagements. But he, he, fra- he frankly had had a very quiet career. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he's not a particularly heroic figure. Um, but, but cometh the man, cometh the hour. Or is it cometh the hour, cometh the man or something? <laughs> He, he did very well at Burgos. I think we all agree. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Was he a colonel? General, yeah. I think. Oh, he was a general, was he? Uh, brigadier? I, I don't know. He wasn't any more He wasn't any more than a brigadier. Right. Okay. And so, so then we've, we've heard a bit about the defences. So they, they sound strong, but certainly not impregnable. So as Wellington approached and moved into the town, what, what were his plans? Do we know what his initial plans were and how, how those first moves played out? Maybe that's one for you to pick up on, Mark. It's not very obvious what the original plan was. Uh, and this, I think, is one of the examples where John Jones has written his history after the event rather than what actually happened. What John Jones wrote was the plan was to take the San Miguel hornwork, then to dig a communication trench from the suburb of San Pedro, which is to the west of the castle and La Blanca. So dig a trench in and then mine the first wall and then escalade the, the other two walls. I'm just going to cut you off a second there, Mark, because I think a, a lot of people may not be aware of the terminology. So by escalate, essentially, you mean a quick scramble up ladders and over the wall, yeah. just to sort of sum it up. Coup de main, throw, throw some troops at the wall and get them over and hopefully take the place before the defenders have any time to react to it. The initial plan um, does not involve mining. Mine, mining is something that they do. Um, when they find that they've got to do something. Originally, the plan is an escalade. Um, yes. Escalade, escalade the fort of, of um, San Miguel and, and take that by storm and then try and escalade on, on the, 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 the main part of the, of, of the fortress. Okay, San Miguel falls. Um, it, it, it's terrible casualties. Um, and there's actually a, a very moving um, story that we can, that one can tell about about one uh, Scottish soldier in particular. Um, essentially, the plan called for the battalion of the Black Watch, Wellington had in his, his army, to be the spearhead, and it was to be in three parties. Um, you've got the the two uh, bastions, one at each end of the, the front of the hornwork. And a party of the 42nd was to storm each of these using ladders. And uh, meanwhile, um, the, the rest of the battalion was to advance in line um, up to the glassy and, and pour fire on the French. And there were Portuguese troops backing up the storming parties. Um, I fear to say that the Portuguese troops did not distinguish themselves. Um, and, and, and hung back. And so the 42nd had to do um, all the fighting. And a lot of his men were shot down on the glassy. And um, the chaps trying to climb the bastions um, found that they were enormously high. I mean, I, I, I myself have, have scaled them 
um, by hand, and they are very steep, very high, um, and the ladders weren't, weren't long enough, and so they used their bayonets to improvise footholds, um, and a few of the men did get up onto the top, um, but they'd driven off, and the French would have held, but for the fact that an, offi uh, uh, an officer called Cox, who was originally a cavalryman, but had joined the 71st Highland Light Infantry, he had a diversionary force, um, which, he, which he took down the, the right-hand side of the hornwork, and he discovered that the palisade at the rear um, wasn't very well guarded. And so he and his men climbed in over the palisade and attacked the French in the rear, and then the, the French abandoned the place. Far a distance, far a distance lies Scotty the brave, no tombstone or memorable for to hollow his grave for his bones. There is a Scottish ballad called The Ballad of Jamie Poyers, and it's pretty lugubrious and it's all about a soldier who, who goes out to Spain, um, joins Wellington's army and he, he, he gets to Burgos and he takes part in the, in the attack um, and is, is actually mortally wounded while he's, while he's climbing a ladder and um, he, he falls down from the bottom of the ladder and then, and then for about half the song he lies there dying and saying, and tell my poor mother this, and tell my poor father that, and tell my best friend Robert the other. And it goes on and on and on. Anyhow, um, setting that aside, there's a lot of detail um, in the song. Um, it tells you about where he comes from. It tells you about how he, he, he enlisted in the Perthshire militia. Um, it tells you about how he transferred to the... Um, to the, to the 42nd and goes out to Spain. And um, in, in the song, the attack on Burgos is, it happens the night after they arrive in Spain. That's, that's not actually true. They arrived at Lisbon and had to march to Burgos. But it is true that, that the, the attack on Burgos was their first action. And, um, and I was looking at these lyrics and I was thinking, hmm, yeah, this is interesting. And so my colleagues and I went and found the casualty lists from Burgos. And sure enough, um, after, after a Lieutenant Hugh Grant, um, who's the only officer who's killed that, that, that night in the 42nd, the first name on the list is Sergeant James Hoyers. And he was a real man. Where young Jimmy fires in battle was slain to the Persian Malishi to serve on the line the brave forty second all burned for to join somehow is commemorated in the song. Um, yeah. Anyhow, they, so they, they take the, the, the homework um, and then they try an escalade on the main part of the fortress and it goes 
I mean, it, Wellington does not come out of this story with any credit whatsoever. Wellington could be very, very unkind about subordinates, particularly subordinates who thought for themselves. Um, the assault was going to be conducted by a mixture of, of men from different units, um, some from the Guards, some from the King's German Legion. <clears throat> and Laurie was ordered to advance uphill towards the fortress from a sunken lane which ran along, which ran down from the ravine, basically, um, roughly parallel with the line of the medieval walls. Um, very steep ascent, and, Lo and Laurie knew full well that probably the attack would break down because his, his men would start shooting at the opposition and it wouldn't make any progress. So he changes um, the operation. Um, rather than climbing upwards towards the fortification in a line, he, he arranges his men in a column. He puts them on the, on the hill of San Miguel and he charges full tilt straight down the hill um, and then across the ravine and then up the other side to the, to the, uh, the fortifications. He's got a, a much shorter distance to climb. His men are in column, so they're going to be you know, moving quickly. Um, unfortunately, they're seen. It's, it's all done at night, of course. The French open fire and the column falls apart. Um, Laurie leads the first part of it forward up the slope and, and, and tries to um, put ladders against the wall and, and so forth. But the rear half of the column, and we come back here to the issue of poor morale in Wellington's army, um, peels off and, and goes into the sunken road and takes cover there. And, and some of them open fire on defenders, but the point is that they're not pressing the attack. Um, and Laurie and his men are badly outnumbered, um, suffer heavy casualties. Laurie himself is killed when um, a cannonball is dropped on his head. Um, you know, the French were, were, were just literally, they had so many, so many cannonballs, and they're actually stored in that part of the fortress that they could just use them as, as missiles, handheld missiles. Um, Laurie's killed. The attackers are driven off. Wellington is absolutely furious and and you know posthumously of course but he really lays into this officer and he says it's all his fault and thing that there's no such thing in the, in the British army as an, as, an, as an officer who reads his orders and he goes into an absolute rant and I do think that um, the unfortunate Major Laurie was was dealt with very very badly by him um, he he, he In, 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 in under a fairer commander, you know, he, he ought to have got whatever the equivalent of the VC was. It was only after the, the failed attack by Major Laurie that they started thinking about digging the first mine. So th th this is several days after the siege has started. So again, it's piecing together what actually happened as opposed to what Jones wrote had happened. So after the failed uh, assault on the 22nd, 23rd of September by Laurie, the following night, they started building trenches 
from San Pedro to actually place a mine under the first wall. They started a second mine a few days later on the 28th. And the, what I call the third assault went in on the 29th of September, where the mine that they'd placed against the first wall was sprung. Charles, do you want to talk through this or should I carry on? Um, I can say a little bit more about um, the various possibilities for mining. Um, remember I said that the, 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 the main part of the citadel with the castle was on, if you like, um, a knoll sticking out with very steep drop on, on three sides. Um, they could have used mining um, on any of those sides. And uh, initially, they, they decide to do it on the, on the western slopes. Now, the, the, the slope is absolutely precipitous. It's about one in three or something like that, dropping down. Um, and so you could actually dig a tunnel in from quite close to defenders. Um, it wasn't as if you're going to have to tunnel a long way because the fall, the fall of ground is so precipitous that actually you can be well out of sight of the walls and indeed well below the level of the walls um, quite close in. So they don't have, the tunnels don't have to be very long. The trouble is that if you mine there, you're only going to get through the old medieval wall and then you have to fight your way across the terrace uh, beyond it um, to get to the main part of the, um, you know, the, the proper bastion fortifications. What I don't understand is why they didn't actually dig the mines on the other side of the castle, on the eastern side, because there the fall of ground is equally steep. Um, so you've got the same advantage um, and you haven't got the medieval wall to worry about. And you haven't got, if you like, a, a, an area of beaten ground, this, this terrace, if you like, to get across. You could simply dig right under the, the um, there's only, there's only two, two lines of, of, of earthworks there. Mm -hmm. Dig right under them and you can blow a big breach and get through. Now, a chap called Howard Douglas, who had been the British liaison officer at La Coruña, he, he was at the siege. And he claims that he went around and picked out this site and said, look, you know, this is where you dig the mines and it's ignored by the engineer officers. Well, okay, you can take that or leave that. I mean, you know, for exactly the same sorts of reasons as you say, Mark. I mean, Howard, Howard Douglas was not the nicest of characters either. Um, <laughs> but looking at the site, I, you know, I do have to say he had a point. Because on, you know, if, you, if you go in from the other side, all you're going to do is get to this terrace and there you're completely overlooked. Um, what you've got effectively is, is, if you like, a sheer cliff, um, another escarpment with, the, with the, the, um, the, the ramparts and so forth on top of that. So not an easy prospect. And, and it is puzzling why they chose that side. But cho choose that side they did, and tunnel they did. I mean, maybe Mark, you'd like to say something about the consistency of the soil because it was actually um, that's one of the few advantages that they discovered. 
I'm I'm not quite sure I'm I'm qualified to answer that, but certainly the the, the soil must have been very heavy, very clay, because one of the problems that, that they went into was they couldn't actually get any air at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and that that caused significant problems in digging the mines, where bizarrely, when they later in the siege um, dug a, t- a, 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 a tunnel under the church of San Roman to the south, although the, the tunnel was longer, air was actually percolating in through the ground. So the, the, there must have been a greater density in the soil to the, the west of the citadel. The, the, I'm not the sure well, that's what you actually meant, Charles, but... Um, no, well, well, sort of, because the point I was getting at was um, that the, 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 um, the ground turned out to be very, very stiff, and so they were able to dig these tunnels without putting up any, any pit props. Mm. Um, you know, that, that was one of the few things that actually, you know, they got lucky in. Um, so they're able to dig these tunnels relatively quickly, but as I'm as I'm sure you're about to tell us, Mark, um, when they blow the first of these, they have a nasty surprise. <laughs> I, I hate it when people set me up like that. Thank you, Charles. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what you mean, but when the the mine was exploded, it did bring down part of the wall. But the actual assault failed completely. Now I'm not sure whether that's what you mean or whether you mean something no, else. No, well the pro- the problem was that they 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 dug and dug and dug and they hit what they thought was oh, the they, base- yeah, they hit the medieval wall, not not the, the newer wall. Well no, they, 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 the 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 wall that they wanted to get through was medieval as well, but they, they hit some of its foundations. Um, and didn't realise that they came well forward of the wall itself. So when they blew the mine, they blew it just too short. So rather than um, blasting a nice V-shaped cut in in the um, in the in the terrace ahead of them, so you know they, you'd, they'd have, you'd you'd blow a hole in the wall, and then you'd have a nice sloping channel you could charge up behind it. All they did was bring down the face of the wall. Yes, um, yeah. And, and the net result was that anybody who tried to get up it, um, well, you know, was, was, was facing a sheer wall of earth, which wasn't at all easy to get up. Yeah, uh, certainly the, the, there were comments to that effect um, that the, there was a wall to climb. A small number did make it to the top, but the... The, the assault in, in essence failed because the, the, the leading assaulting party, almost the fall on hope of about 20 soldiers, got lost and couldn't find it. But there were four or five troops that did find their way up. Uh, and Burgoyne commented that they must have got to the top because they had bayonet wounds on their hands and their arms, which could only have come from facing off uh, against uh, the defending troops. So the, 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 this assault probably of all of them was the one that failed the most spectacularly in that they never actually got a significant number of troops to come forward to, to make this assault. The, the officer leading the, the forlorn hope forward came back essentially and said, I couldn't find the breach. Uh, and the whole thing petered out at that point. Because, of course, in the dark, 
there wouldn't have been, you know, all, all you had really was a sort of crack in the facing of the wall. And they wouldn't, they literally wouldn't have been able to see where the breach was. What, what, what had typically happened on, on the previous sieges is there would have been, uh, I'm going to use the word intelligent, but maybe not the right one. An intelligent officer would lead the storming parties forward. This would be typically be an engineer officer, but there were so few engineer officers there that there wasn't actually one that was available to do it. So the troops were left to their own to find the breach. And as you say, in the dark, when people are throwing explosive things at you, I'm sure that's much more difficult than it, it seems sitting in an armchair watching it. Mark, it, 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 it occurs to me that um, people might not understand what we mean when we talk about engineers and about the way the Corps of Engineers was set up. Today, of course, the Royal Engineers have, you know, everybody right up from privates to, gen to generals. They have um, trained specialist personnel who, you know, who are used to, you know, who, who are trained at using all the mechanical diggers and all the rest of it that the engineers and cranes and so forth, engineers have to use. Of course, back at the beginning of the 19th century, the situation was very different, wasn't it? Yeah, 1812, um, where, where I were, October 1812, the School of Military Engineering to train sappers, as we call them today, was only formed in April 1812. And the first trained sappers did not arrive in the peninsula until 1813. So what we had at Burgos was... Royal Engineers at the time, which were officers only, there were only five engineer officers present at Burgos. All the other um, tradesmen, if I can use that word, were begged and borrowed from the line regiments. So it's not really an ideal way of, of, of getting an, an effective force to, to do things like sieges. Uh, of the five officers there, one had already been quite badly injured. Uh, bizarrely, he wasn't shot. He fell off his horse and broke his arm. Uh, by the end of the siege, of the five engineer officers present, which was the total engineering expertise, uh, three of the five were completely hors de combat. And Burgoyne had also been hit on the head. So this doesn't help with engineering planning or the technical sides of, of military activity when the resources are, are so skimpy. Again, it's, it's, it's trying to sort of flesh out the resources from, you know, it, you know, from what you've got. You know, it, again, it's inadequate resources. And um, as the siege goes on, there's also um, problems with... with um, well, there's problems with the guns themselves, which are ghastly, but the, 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 the Wellington's so short of cannonballs that he had that his soldiers are, you know, are so, they're told, right, okay, you go out and bring in a, uh, an 18 pound cannonball and you'll get sixpence for it. And yeah, and Dick, Dixon comments on this at length uh, the, uh, the, the stupidity of it. Well, it's fairly. If you if you mean the stupidity of the men, how they'll how they'll run out under fire and no, I didn't mean that at all, Charles. Oh, I see. But the, 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 the lack of resources that made it yeah. necessary to do it. No, there there are, but there are officers who make snooty remarks about 
about how ridiculous it is that men should run out just to go and grab a cannonball under fire. And um, But in point of fact, it's actually, why would men do that? Because they got almost no money, they got almost no food, and so taking a risk to get a few extra pence you know, would have seemed a good move. Well, if you're working in the trenches, you've got no pay for being shot at. So it would seem to me like a, a perfectly sensible thing to do. At least you might get some reward for being shot at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So any, anyway, so, you know, we have this picture of, of, of making do and mend. What were the deficiencies in, in the siege train and the logistics that the British had? Like, what, what, why... What were they lacking and, and why? Let, let me talk about guns, because I think this is very, very relevant to the siege of Burgos and why it didn't go very well. The, the, the guns that they had available, and you can always know that your uh, computer's going to go to sleep just <laughs> as you start reading some notes off it. <laughs> the, um, the, the siege train that Wellington arrived at uh, Burgos with had three 18-pounder, nine-foot cannon. This is, inverted commas, a small siege gun. A 24-pounder will be a, a preferred weapon. With these three 18-pounders, there were five, what tend to get called 24-pounder iron howitzers. Now, the, these are effectively, I mean, people who are familiar with the period would know what to, if I said a 5.5-inch howitzer, it's what the field uh, artillery units carried. Uh, and it was basically used for what I would call sort of suppression of enemy fire. It's a very short two and a half, three foot barrel, one meter barrel. Uh, it's designed for spraying shells, not for battering walls. So Wellington Seas Train had three small to medium sized cannon and five other guns, which John Jones described and his view was supported by many others. All they're useful for is wasting ammunition. The, the, the um, energy of a 24-pounder round shot coming out of a 24-pounder iron howitzer was about the equivalent of a nine-pounder cannon. You wouldn't use a nine-pounder cannon for trying to knock walls down. The other problem with these howitzers, apart from having very little, and I'm going to use the word kinetic energy, the energy they were throwing at the wall, apart from having very little energy, they were very inaccurate. Now, if you talk to Colonel Lip Nick Lipscon about siege guns and what they were trying to do, he will describe a gunner cutting a line in the wall to make it come down. So a siege gun has to be highly accurate. And that's where they're nine, you're three meters long. These are big guns. Something with a 26, sorry, a less than a meter barrel, it's spraying the shots all over the wall. So whilst it might seem like a good idea to use these iron howitzers because they're very light and easy to move, the expenditure of 24 pounder cannonballs goes through the roof. So this is the problem on what Wellington's using. He's got three siege guns and five that are wasting ammunition. From about halfway through the siege, two of the three 18-pounders have had the trunnion knocked off. The trunnion is the pivot that is used on, on the, the um, brains gone dead, which is used to mount it to the carriage. 
And that's what you use to tip it up and down to get the angle right. When a trunnion's knocked off a gun, you throw it away. It's useless. Because they didn't have any others, they tried strapping these cannon to the carriages using ropes and chains. Uh, so you can imagine they were inaccurate. They were downright dangerous because they kept falling off the carriages when you fired them. And because they're in this damaged state, they reduced the powder charge from the normal uh, six pound to two pound. So that meant the energy of the 18 pounders was massively reduced. So what Wellington was doing was trying to besiege a castle with a totally inadequate set of siege guns. And apart from the fact they didn't work, every soldier involved in the siege could see this was going on. The troops were, felt they were being used as cannon fodder. And this comes down very much, I think, to the issue about the morale of the troops during the siege. They could see they didn't have a siege train that would work. You, right, one another over. But do you want me to pick up on what actually happens? Yeah, I think if you could pick up then, Charles. So we, we've had this, uh, this attempt at, at mining the walls that, that, that was uh, very unsuccessful. What, what happened next? Well, you remember that they were digging a second mine as well, um, and it's dug um, maybe maybe a hundred yards south of where the original one was. And this one, they do it properly, um, and they do blow um, a big, not just a, a breach in, in the wall, but they blow the, the, the V-shaped crevasse, if you like, behind it, just the, the ramp to get up onto the next level. Um, and this time, the, the assault is handled in a very different way. Um, the, the previous assault on, on, on the Hornwork and indeed the, on the, the, the um, old medieval wall, they've been conducted by um, parties of men from different units. Um, now, and small parties at that. Now, Wellington clearly had had a very, very harrowing time at Badajoz. He'd seen his best assault units shot to pieces, um, and he'd seen how um, if you threw loads and loads of men at a breach, the, the, the chances were they were going to get caught in a traffic jam at the bottom of the breach or at the bottom of the ladders, and they'd just present the French with, with an easy target. So at Burgos, he starts off by um, trying small parties of troops um, maybe 200, 300 men in, in the assault. Um, and they're drawn from their volunteers from various different units. Well, the good news is that, yeah, you don't have, a, you don't have this great big mass of troops waiting to get shot down. The bad news is that the men don't know each other and they don't know each other's officers. And sometimes they're not even the same nationality. Um, Laurie's men... Um, Half of them were guards, um, and you can presume that probably about 50% um, of those were Irish. Um, and, and the other half were Germans. So really not a happy combination, not a happy idea. For the second assault, Wellington um, go, go, goes to another option, which is to just to use a single battalion... Um, so not many more men, maybe about 500 men as opposed to 300, 
but they're, they're, it, it is a single battalion. Um, and he chooses a battalion of the 24th foot. Um, and um, this assault actually works wonderfully well. I mean, the, 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 the soldiers storm up the breach. They're under the command of their, of their own officers. They're uh, under, the, under the command of their sergeants and their, their best mates are on right and left. And, and they um, actually get through the breach and, and get up onto the top. And then they come to a dead halt because they make um, a couple of very unpleasant discoveries. Um, essentially, at, at, at the end of the breach, um, and the British didn't know this when they, when, when they were planning it, um, at the end of where the breach is, the French had built a work called a Cavalier, which is uh, basically a small independent fortification built up inside a bigger one um, basically like a sort of a, a, a firing point if you like and this commanded the end of the breach completely um, it had been built actually to, to guard the, um, the, the entrance and the terrace into the castle commanded the end of the breach and consequently um, they were just sort of shot down um, they couldn't get beyond the end of the breach so they spread out along the wall um, and uh, essentially um, dig themselves in behind the parapet of the fortification, that, which had been on top of the medieval wall. So you've now got a very thin lodgment just inside the walls. Um, but it's completely overlooked. Um, and also, um, uh, the the French can can basically flank it from this cavalier. Um, so so casualties casualties in the assault aren't heavy, but then everything snarls up and you're starting to get heavy casualties and being shot down. The Breton is a very tough cookie and launches not one but two sorties, then come storming out from where the cavalier is, sweep along the trenches, bayonetting um, bayonetting uh, men. Um, trying to fill the trenches in, stealing entrenching tools. Um, there's one on the 6th of October, one on the 8th of October. Um, what Wellington has got to do now, he, he realises he's got to make a breach of the next um, line of walls. And so he sets up a, his guns in a battery um, right down at the bottom of the hill. Um, it's impossible to say exactly where the battery is, was because it's covered in buildings now. Um, bit, bit difficult trying to see where the line of sight was, but um, uh, the, the guns are overpowered you know, after firing a few shots and they have to be withdrawn. Um, they're dragged around with considerable difficulty to the, the, the hill where the, the, uh, the hornwork is. And they're, they're dug in there in a covered position where they couldn't be fired at from the main castle. And from there, they do manage to effect a breach. Um, and they, they do it. Um, remember I said that the, the medieval wall um, only went around parts of the castle. They do it precisely at the point where it stops. So they haven't got to worry about that. They've only got the, the, the earthwork defences. 
only got the earthwork defences. I mean, you, you stand and look at them, and they're absolutely enormous. But they do manage to blow a breach. Um, and, I mean, the time has been ticking all, all along. Um, and, you know, Wellington knows that, that, that sooner or later the French, the French, the French armies are going to start marching on him. And the siege began on September the 19th. We're now coming to, you know, a full month has gone by. Um, it's pouring with rain. Um, it had been coming down in buckets and the troops had no proper shelter. Um, they're having an absolutely dreadful time. Um, and Wellington looks at this breach, says, okay, right, we can, we can, we can, we can, we can use that. And he launches another assault, except for reasons which simply aren't clear, he doesn't use the tactic which had worked on the second breach. Mm. He uses the, the, the small party of men from different units approach. Um, and he basically sends in two columns. One, one is basically King's German Legion troops, but drawn from different units who have to storm the breach which has been blown by his guns. The other um, is composed of uh, volunteers from various guard units, and they go in um, basically uh, across the terrace and they try and attack um, the wall by the cavalier. They've got, they've got scaling ladders. The assault goes in um, towards dusk. Considerable courage is, is shown in, in both places. I mean, the the king, some of the king's German legion you know, get to the top of the breach and start trying to fight their way along the walls. Um, some of the guards manage to get their ladders in place and, and, and get up um, to the main line of defences. Um, but there just aren't enough of them and they are pushed back by French counterattacks and um, the attack is repelled. Um, and that night... Wellington realizes that he's got to pull out because he knows that the French are on the move, not very far away. Um, the French army's behind the April. Um, he's also getting alarming news from um, his effectively second in command, if you like, Sir Roland Hill, who'd been left in Madrid. The French are on the move there as well. And so Wellington has to retreat. And this, of course, is where the, the, the blame game starts to come in. You know, whose fault is it? The, the troops are furious with Wellington. Um, everybody's furious of the engineers, you know, Wellington and the troops. Um, everybody's furious with the Spaniards. They're, they're always a useful scapegoat. Um, it, it's a time of immense recrimination. Um, the British Army has this very long and difficult retreat um, across Spain, in, in, uh, in which um, it's several times <coughs> threatened by near destruction. It escapes every time, um, where you know, supplies break down again. The weather is frightful. Um, something like something like five thousand men are lost in the course of the retreat. Um, you know, stragglers, desertion. Then falling stick um, and being taken prisoner. 
well. So just to just to clarify for anyone who's not quite aware, then after, after withdrawing from Burgos, uh, Wellington and the Allied army were forced to retreat all the way back to Portugal. Yeah, and, for, and forced to abandon Madrid, um, which the Spaniards are absolutely furious about. The Spaniards, you know, are, are no more aware of Wellington's problems, and Wellington's aware of the Spaniards' problems. Um, dialogue of the death stuff, um, and so. By the end of the year, it, 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 well, by the end of November, to be precise, which is when the, the retreat comes to an end, um, it looks as if the, the, the Anglo-Portuguese army has been bundled back to its starting point and the French are back in control, except that isn't the case because um, actually the French never get back southern Spain. They never get back western Spain. You know their their hold on the country has been shaken, um, if not stirred, um, <laughs> and and in many ways, the way is open for a victorious offensive in eighteen thirteen, yeah. um, with a bit this, of help from Napoleon and Russia. Yeah, I mean this this is a this is a failure. Yeah, but it's not a defeat. Okay, so. Yeah. So when when Wellington was unable to take Burgos, what what then led to him having to retreat all the way back? Uh, sorry if this is a silly question, but just to sort of clarify that, what what was the reasoning? Was this because Soult was 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 threatening his his flank along with um, other French commanders? Yeah, the, the, the French at this point had concentrated enough that they, they were numerically superior to Wellington's army. Even when he'd um, concentrated with Hill, they were still outnumbered. And almost going back to where we started this, what's the point of taking Burgos? There was actually no easy defensible position back before you arrive at the Portuguese border. Wellington tried to use a number of rivers to... Uh, hold the line but each time the French managed to outflank him uh, he, he had a, a, a week on the Duero and then a week around Salamanca but eventually the French outflanked him again and he really was left with no choice but to keep moving back towards Portugal. And Charles you, you said this wasn't necessarily a, a defeat as such but would it be fair to say that this was probably one of the worst times of of Wellington's career at least especially in the peninsula oh, yes I've, I've, absolutely I mean um, is there a worse time um, the retreat after Talavera was a bit sticky sometimes but it wasn't nearly as bad um, yeah I mean this is this is this is a real real low point um, Things have gone, you know, I say it's not a defeat because the army is still intact. It's still got, it's still got all its resources intact. It's not lost its baggage. It's not lost its, its, um, its guns. It's, it's still perfectly capable of fighting. And indeed, at various points in the, re in the retreat, it, you know, Wellington offers battle and, and, and says, come and, come and take me. And, and, and the French don't, and they, they back off. Um, so no, not a defeat, um, but a huge embarrassment. Um, Wellington, another story. Wellington had been offered the command of the Spanish armies, um, and 
this could have been quite useful, um, but it's still in a process, in effect, in negotiation. And all of this bursts right in the middle of this. And so, you know, lots of Spaniards start to say, well, you know, he got this wrong. Is he the right man for the job? <laughs> and there's various other issues there, which I won't go into. Um, certainly the army's confidence in Wellington is badly shaken. You know, there are, there are plenty of officers saying, well, what was that all about? You know, and, and you know, why were we expected to take it without proper resources? Why weren't there siege guns? Um, you know, why didn't the engineers know what they were doing? Um, you know, why this? Why that? Why the other? Um, so the, the army's confidence in Wellington is shaken. Um, Wellington's confidence in the Portuguese is shaken. The, the Portuguese did not come, come out well at all in, in the Burgos campaign. I mean, nobody, yeah, some, some British and KGL troops had fought very bravely. Plenty have not distinguished themselves. And, uh, but on the whole, the Portuguese had really not distinguished themselves. Um, so, so, you know, there's a bundle of discontents. And the whole thing is, frankly, a great embarrassment, which, which Wellington could well have done without. Yeah. Could he have done anything else? I, I have to say that, that you know, he was, he was not on his A-game. I think really between September and, and the end of the retreat, he, he he really was off his normal style. He, he just so many bad decisions, um, which and, and I think you're right. It, it shook the confidence of, of his troops and ultimately was not helped by the blistering uh, public complaints he made to them when he finally got back to Theodad Rodrigo, which I think soured any goodwill that, he had with his officers uh, for the rest of the campaign. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not Wellington's fault. I mean, I, I'm being ironic, you know. But <laughs> yeah, I was with you. <laughs> yeah, it's everybody else's fault. Mm. Um, I mean, he makes this famous comment about this about the the uh, the Spanish army. I have never known the Spanish army do anything much less do anything well, <laughs> which is, you know, one of the most cutting put-downs, you know, I've ever come across. <laughs> so, yeah, um, not a happy story, but there is a happy story in that by a series of miracles, the, the Citadel of Burgos has, has survived absolutely intact. Um and you can walk around it, and you can explore it, and you can actually follow follow through everything that, that Mark and I have been saying. Um, it's an extraordinary survival. Brilliant. So if anyone's listening slash watching to this then, do you recommend that, you know, if you're visiting Spain and you're interested in military history, Burgos is, is, is well worth being on your list of places to go? Oh, ab absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you do have to have some sort of guide because the, um, I mean, the castle itself has been rebuilt as a fake. Um, there, you know, there is a castle sitting there now, but it's it's a it's it is a complete and total fake. It's sort of a, a Disneyland castle 
which looks sort of like um, a bit like the original one might have looked like, and it isn't. It's in the right place. It's, it's within the confines of the ditch and so forth. Um, the the rest of the site is is for the most part covered with quite thick forest, and so you can walk around in it. And unless you had some sort of guide, you wouldn't know what you were seeing. Um, and in all honesty, I, I mean, I went back there many, many times in the course of my research, and it took me quite a while to to finally piece everything together. Though, though, in fact, eventually, um, so you need you need a decent guide. I mean, there is this book by that by by this fellow called Esdale, but it's extremely expensive, and you know, I'm sure that there are there are alternatives, but actually. Um, is, is your app still available, Charles? Your walking yeah, app? Yeah, I was, to, I was going to talk about that, yeah. So, but actually, if you go to the tourist office in Burgos, you can actually get a very good plan with, with, with a brief account of the siege and um, all of, all of the, the, the trails marked out. But yes, my oh, app... Brilliant. I, one of the things I did, one of the outcomes of my research is a downloadable app you can get it on um you can get it from apple you can't get it from android um i went on to do one on the battlefield of waterloo which you can get from both um if you just if you just type in siege of burgos into the apple store um you can you'll get um the app um it's it's completely free because it was done on sort of pro bono basis um, and it's a very, very detailed guide to the fortress, um, complete with walking trails. Oh, brilliant. And, um, you know, as, as you go around, there, there are viewpoints and things like that. If you can imagine, um, I set up a, a series of, if you like, virtual information panels saying, you are here across right. the road to see, um, and just to your right, you can see and this is where, and then accompanying it, there is uh, an extract from a, in some memoir or other, you know, by, for the sake of argument, John Jones, you know, saying, you know, this is what actually happened at this particular point. You know, I was here and I saw this. I don't know about you, but that chat has really made me want to visit Burgos. I did go there once years ago, but never went to the castle. I'd love to walk some of these battlefields. The app that Charles has produced sounds brilliant. And if there are any listeners out there that are billionaire philanthropists and want to fly me up to make some films in Spain and Portugal, then please let me know. <laughs> Just send the tickets, I'll be there. Charles and Mark really are experts. Both of them can be found on Twitter. Mark is at MarkSThompson2, the number two. And Charles has the handle at Charles Esdale, all one word. Both are well worth a follow. As an aside, I don't use it that often, but I am also on Twitter. And surprise, surprise, I'm, you guessed it, at Redcoat History. Anyway, guys, next month we have two episodes. Once again, we're taking a short break from my Peninsula War narrative to speak with friend of the show, Josh Proven. Josh will be explaining all about the Second Anglo-Maratha War fought in India between 1803 and 1805. He's just written a book about it. It was a war that included the famous Battle of Versailles, where a young officer named Arthur Wellesley made his name. 
All being well, I'll also be joined in a second episode next month by John Ellis to talk about the fascinating subject of black soldiers in the peninsula. Like me, you're probably surprised to hear that there actually were any. But surprisingly, there were quite a few, as we'll find out. In November, if I can get my act together, I hope to release a solo episode on the Battle of Vitoria. The decisive battle that finally saw the French defeated in Spain, it's a fascinating fight that saw Wellington bounce back in style from the embarrassment of Burgos and the retreat. I think you'll enjoy that one, guys. So until then, keep in touch, keep your powder dry, and I'll see you then.